and he filled all nations to make disciples. He did not preach the gospel around the world and the end come. The end has not yet come, has it? When is the end? I'm not sure. Still don't know. It's 20 years after he quit preaching. So, uh, what are we to do? Well, I think we should spend some money and make some serious effort to at least make ourselves available and in a quality manner, which we have failed to do to this point. And uh, we're doing some planning now, as per the sermonette, to get it done and get it done right instead of sort of going about it and sort of letting it happen. That isn't the way to go about it. All right, that's all I had in announcements. Let's go back to Jeremiah. We finished at the end of chapter 5 last time, and I'll do a very quick review. He says in verse 29 of chapter 5, Shall I not visit for these things, the sins that he had been talking about in that chapter? Shall not my soul be avenged on such a people as this? Then he says, an astonishing and filthy thing is committed in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests bear rule according to their false prognostications, their false focuses, their false approaches, that maybe do just include, as its focus, one verse, Matthew 24, 14. So all they can see is that verse, so they put all their effort into preaching the gospel around the world, not understanding that the context of Matthew 24 is that the two witnesses will finish that job, and when their job is finished in Jerusalem, they will die right there, and the end will come right then. Well, three and a half days later, after the world parties. So, we need to back off and look at the whole Bible. And all of God's instruction and all the things God needs to do or needs done or desires done, not just one verse. So they do have false prognostications, ideas, focuses, and they're leaving out an awful lot, focusing on one verse which doesn't apply to them in the first place. And my people love to have it so. This is an indictment by God. Now, whatever then is going on in the church and in the nation, look around. Take a broad view of everything that's going on and understand that for the most part, what is being preached, for the most part, what is being done is not something God wants, but the people love to have it so. Our people love to have the kind of culture and society we have. The church, to a great degree, shares that love. The church as a whole obviously is going a wrong direction because it is not receiving the blessing of God. Not receiving the understanding to know what to do so that it can be accomplished so the blessing of God can return. Overall, what is going on is something the people love, but God doesn't. That should really get our attention. And it should make us begin to scratch gravel to understand what we and others may be missing.
What could we be missing? What could the whole church be missing? Now, this is getting right down to the time when the nation and most of the church is going to be destroyed and go into captivity. So it's a right now thing that Jeremiah is talking about. What is going on that needs change? It behooves every called out one in God's church to think very deeply about self and about organization and about what is being done. And for every minister to think very seriously about whether he is preaching what people love to hear or what God says to preach. And when God says, shall I not visit for these things, and then says it's a horrible and filthy thing that's going on in the nation and the church, then he issues a warning beginning in chapter 6. O you children of Benjamin, now Benjamin included the city of Jerusalem, included the capital for Judah. Levi, Judah, and Benjamin were in what was called the tribe of Judah. Those three had a had an alliance. The other ten tribes were called Israel. But Jerusalem was the capital of Judah, and Samaria being the capital of Israel, but overall, all Israel, Jew and Israelite alike, looked to Jerusalem as a spiritual capital as well, not just a political capital. So you children of Benjamin, gather yourselves to flee out of the midst of Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem, the capital, was going to be besieged and fall, or to be taken into captivity. Now, if the capital falls, what happens to the rest of the country? I think that should be obvious. What if Washington, D.C. were to fall tomorrow? What would happen to the rest of the country? The rest of the country would go down in like manner. So it's a warning to everyone, not just in Jerusalem. Jerusalem also, we understand, represents the church on a spiritual level, and our physical nations of Israel and Judah on a physical level. So what does he say to do, you children of Benjamin? You write where the center of the siege and the greatest destruction is going to occur. They know, if you, you know, you got a big snake. You can pound the snake from shoulders, doesn't really have them, but to tail. And you can make the snake angry. But if you want to deal with the snake, the easiest thing is just cut the head off to start with. And if you want to destroy a people, then cut off the head. The capital, the government. Now, God is going to do that, we find in Revelation, Revelation, in Zechariah. He's going to cut off three churches, three big trees, three women, three ministries. He'll cut the head off. He'll stop it on the government level. And what happens to the rest? It withers and dies very quickly. Individuals will be on their own. Individuals will have to seek out and find where they need to be because no longer will they have the umbrella of the church to sit under. We'll see that here if we get that far. I don't want to get ahead of the story again. These thoughts are just coming to mind. But gather yourselves to flee out of the midst of Jerusalem, blow the trumpet in Tekoa, and set up a sign of fire in Bethesarim, for evil appears out of the north, and great destruction. 
Why would you flee toward Tekoa and set up a sign of fire in Bethesda? Well, let's analyze some things that are said here. You're supposed to flee from an unsafe place so up to a safe place, or a place of safety, if you want to call it that. So when you see the destruction coming, there's a time to get out. Tekoa means blow, like a, on a trumpet, or to warn. Tekoa was the last town in Judea, about 11 miles south of Jerusalem. So the destruction's coming from the north, so they were told to flee to the south. I mean, you don't, you don't flee toward the army that's coming, you flee the other direction. Bethasarim is about halfway between Jerusalem and Tekoa, and that word means house of the vineyard, or vineyard house, which God refers to his church as a vineyard. Uh, Isaiah 5, for instance, uh, John, what is it, about chapter 15, he talks about how he is the vine, we are the branches, and so on. So his called out church certainly are called a vine, and I think that it is with uh, foreknowledge that Jeremiah, or God through Jeremiah, said, flee to the house of the vineyard, for evil is coming. Uh, a sign is a signal, a sign of fire. What does a sign of fire mean? It means terrible destruction. When you talk about fire coming, what did they do when they besieged the city? They breached the walls in whatever form they could and burned it with fire. That's how you destroyed it, got rid of it. So there's a sign of fire in the house of the vineyard. There is a signal, a warning in God's vineyard. The destruction is coming. And God's vineyard, in a larger sense, of course, is all Israel. That's the vine he originally planted. He divorced it. <laughs> we'll mix our metaphors here a little bit. He divorced it, but he is, is selecting certain ones out of it and certain ones out of even the Gentile nations to become spiritual Israelites. Not doing it all by bloodlines now. He's doing it by individual calling from anywhere in the world. When he said make disciples of all nations, in Matthew 28, he meant around the world, all cultures, Gentile, Israelite, didn't matter. God wanted them from everywhere. And that, of course, is shown by Paul's ministry, which was specifically given to him as a ministry to the Gentiles, to go and call people of all races into God's church. The evil appears out of the north and great destruction. So we're right on the edge of this today. I have likened the daughter of Zion to a comely and delicate woman. I think we could compare here, since we just recently went through the book of Esther, uh, the fairest candidate to be queen of them all. And Proverbs 31, we touched on a little bit about how the one daughter was the fairest of them all. All A lot had done well, but that one had done best. And Esther was chosen. So, Christ is choosing his bride, and he's likened the daughter of Zion to a beautiful and delicate woman. Or, my margin says, a, a dwelling-at-home and delicate woman. Not out running around making alliances and whoring around, but 
one who stays at home with God, I think is the inference there. The shepherds with their flocks shall come to her, and this is speaking of evil shepherds, I think the context will show. The shepherds with their flocks shall come to her, they shall pitch their tents against her roundabout, they shall feed everyone in his place. Prepare you war against her. Arise and let us go up at noon. So the context is here, here is destruction coming from the north, and here's a delicate woman that is vulnerable. And God is sending armies against her. Whether it be the church or whether it be the physical nation. It is coming against all. And in fact, you might say, Satan's focus is more on destroying church people than it is physical Israelites. Because the called out ones are the ones that irritate him the most. The others he has in his pocket. We who seek to obey God are the ones that he doesn't have control over. And we infuriate him more than anyone else does. So he's preparing war against physical Israel and spiritual Israel. I don't think you can divide that here. Coming against both. Prepare you war against her. Arise and let us go up at noon. Woe to us, for the day goes away, for the shadows of the evening are stretched out. Uh, darkness is coming to Israel. We think, as a people, we have been the shining light to the world, don't we? We think that democracy and our way of life, since we're so wonderful, ought to be spread everywhere. So we go to the Middle East, we go to Africa, we go to Asia, trying to spread the American way of life and culture and government to everyone, because our way is the only way. We're the ones with the bright bluebird promise of greatness. It says the shadows are lengthening, and they're coming. They'll come at noon. Arise and let us go by night, and let us destroy her palaces. So they'll fight us day and night. Will the church be attacked at night when the time comes to go to a place of safety? I don't know. It's a question here. Could be noon. Could be night. I think there will come a time when the people of God, realizing these things are closed, will have to post a 24-hour watch. So when you see the armies gathering, you flee immediately. There will be no time to spare. And there's not a whole lot of time to spare, I think, for our nation and the church as a whole right now. You see, he's coming against all of us. He would love to destroy us all. It is only by the divine mercy of God and an accounting of worthiness let any of us escape. Otherwise, it would be to everyone. For thus has the Eternal of Hosts said, Hew you down trees and cast them out against Jerusalem. They cut down big timbers and made ladders and leaned them against the walls so they could climb over the walls and get in. Whatever is necessary. Just talking about military siege. This is the city to be visited upon. It's the capital city was at that time of all Israel, especially from a spiritual standpoint. She is holy oppression in the midst of her. As a fountain casts out her water, so she casts out her wickedness. What does a fountain do? It bubbles and spews water out. 
so that it spreads into an ever-widening pool. What do we, as a people, as a nation, do with our wickedness? We transport it like a fountain. Wherever we can send it, our wickedness goes out on the airwaves, by via radio, by television, and now via internet. We send our wickedness around the world. So she casts out her wickedness. Violence and spoil is heard in her. This is a nation that is uh, mesmerized almost by violence and murder. Uh, we have a lot of sex themes in our movies and our TV programs, but it seems increasingly we're doting on violence. How many programs do they have on the TV now about crime scene investigation or law and order or various things having to do with murder and the justice system or with forensic science determining who murdered who, it seems like the emphasis is getting more and more to violent murders and crimes and their solving. So people like to hear about and see violence and then see how the authorities handle it. So we're getting more and more violent in what we are focusing on as a people. That's right here. Violence and spoil is heard in her. Before me constantly is grief and wounds. A nation that is obsessed with violence. Why? In part because we have increasing violence in the land. And therefore people's minds are on it and what can be done about it. Uh, is a lot of the focus of what is going on. And not only that, I think these things also are prophetic. Those who are making these films, and sit, not sit, well, sitcoms too, but the, the more dramatic TV programs, and even some of the religious programs, their content is a great deal on violence and destruction and the extraterrestrial is coming in a lot as well. Demonism, that's another kind of a three-pronged focus, sex, violence, and demonism is what is pervading the airwaves. Because Satan wants that to be our focus. Not only that, but he knows he is about to visit under God's plan that violence, that crime upon this people. And it is kind of, uh, I think, a twisted, ironic revealing of what is about to happen before he unleashes it. You know, with, the, with ego and vanity, you like to brag before you do something. And with bullies, they like to brag a lot. So, they're bragging about the New World Order and everything it will bring before they ever get it here. They can't help it. Now, wouldn't it in some respects be more effective if it was sprung on us as a total surprise? But they don't go about it that way. They've started talking publicly about the New World Order and the things that they're going to do to this country, oh, even decades ago when George Bush Sr. first mentioned the thousand points of light in a New World Order. Uh, those things have been mentioned 
even back in the 40s and 50s and 60s, by other leaders, but they were not notated. I saw a write-up on that, some quotes from some of them, way back, where they had made mention of such things, but no one had any clue as to what they were talking about, and it just sort of went over everyone's head. But in more modern times, where it has been noticed was from George Bush, the president, in the first invasion of Iraq. So they're announcing it before they do it. But in some respects, also, it's effective in that it lulls you to sleep. You kind of get used to it. We get used to foreign soldiers on our soil. We get used to uh, troops coming in from other countries into New Orleans. You don't see much about it in the press, do you? No? They've been there, though. Verse 8, Be you instructed, O Jerusalem, lest my soul depart from you, lest I make you desolate, a land not inhabited. God says, I'm sending this. Wake up. Listen. Be instructed. Get it. Something is about to happen. Thus says the eternal host, They shall thoroughly glean the remnant of Israel as a vine. Strip all that is good or looks good, like you would strip a grapevine. Take all the grapes off. Turn back your hand as a grape gatherer into the baskets. Look around. Preserve what you can. Save what you can. They're going to strip you bare. To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Who do you talk to? I think that's one of the questions that perplexes us right now. Who do you talk to? Who can you tell about this? That question is posed by Jeremiah. Isn't it amazing how everything fits perfectly with what's going on right now in the church and in the world? Go out and talk to people in the world. Who are you going to talk to about this nation having a coalition of all peoples coming against it and destroying it? Hard to strike up a conversation along those lines, isn't it? They don't want to hear it. Try doing it in the church. How far will you get? Not very far. You know, you have this information. You have this instruction from God. And, and he says, who shall I speak to? Who can I talk to about this? That they will hear. Behold, their ear is uncircumcised, and they can't hear. Bible talks about normal circumcision. It talks about circumcision of the heart, but it also talks about circumcision of the ear. It's like you have a covering over the ear that shuts out the hearing. And somehow that covering or that skin that covers the ear so that it can't hear has to be clipped off. Circumcise the ears. They simply can't hear. Behold, the word of the eternal is to them a reproach. They have no delight in it. What God is explaining here to us through Jeremiah, they have no delight in. They do not want to hear it. Church or nation. Therefore I am full of the fury of the Lord. I am weary with holding in. Jeremiah says, I'm frustrated. I want to tell everybody, but who will listen? 
Who can you talk to? You know, good and well, they've got big pieces of flaps of skin over their ears and they won't hear a thing. Weary with holding in, I will pour it out upon the children abroad and upon the assembly of young men together. For even the husband with the wife shall be taken, the aged with him that is full of days. Says it's coming, this destruction on everyone, young and old. Their houses shall be turned unto others, with their fields and wives together. Their fields, their farms, are all going to be taken away. And their wives are going to be taken away. Now, does that get our attention? You want your wife given to someone else? You want her taken captivity? Ravished and raped by foreign soldiers? Killed? Or if she's with child, stomach ripped up with swords? Scriptures all say that's going to happen to our people soon. Not a pretty picture. If you love your wife, <clears throat> maybe you ought to give some serious thought to what Jeremiah is saying. There's only one way of escape. That's to hear God's word and heed it. For I will stretch out my hands upon the inhabitants of the land, says the eternal. I don't know if this is just Jeremiah back here. Let's look at the context a little bit. God's word is a reproach. They don't have delight in it. Is this Jeremiah saying this? I'm full of the fury of the Lord. Must be there. I will pour it out upon the children abroad. And it talks about the ravishing and so on. I guess he's, this is Jeremiah saying to the people what God's word is. Jeremiah wanted to pour it out, but God is reaching the point where he simply wants to pour it out and get it finished. When the ark was built, God said it's time. Their thought is evil continually, constantly. And he wanted to destroy that evilness from the face of the earth. And he is in just about the same emotional condition right now. About ready to pour it out. Because it is God who will stretch out his hand upon the inhabitants of the land. For from the least of them, even to the greatest of them, everyone is given to covetousness, and from the prophet, even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. Not telling the real truth, not telling the whole truth, holding some things back, materially seeking for self, covetousness and money, materialism, is one of the key words for both our nation and the church. And people will lie, cheat, and steal to obtain money. That's what covetousness leads to. And it's not talking just about the nation, it's talking about the church. That's shown in verse 14. They have healed also the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. So this has to be from the least to the greatest of former Church of God church leaders. What is God going to do? Now, 
it's not being proclaimed just by church leaders who say peace, peace within their own group, but it's also being said by our leaders who say we're going to have peace. We're going to have peace. We'll destroy whoever gives us problems. Were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. Neither could they blush. doesn't even embarrass us anymore. We think it's a way of life to lie, cheat, and steal for monetary gain. It's just a way of life now. Mr. Armstrong often said, and it's been, I think he quoted from someone else, that once 50% of the people become dishonest, lying, cheating, and stealing, a nation will fall. Do you think we have 50% of our population today that is honest and won't lie, cheat, or steal to get advantage? I think you're naive if you think that. There are some people who are still trying to be honest. I'll bet it's a minority now. Were they, and what about the ministry and the church and the people in it? They were not all ashamed, neither could they blush. Therefore, they shall fall among them that fall. I think that this is saying that those in the church who are not doing what they ought to be doing will fall with the nation as well. I mean, it's cut and dry. The nation will fall. There's no stopping that. There is an opportunity for some not to fall, but that is only those who are the converted ones who will seek God. They're the only ones who have a chance to get out of it. So if we can't blush, if we can't be embarrassed and ashamed by a lot of the attitudes and actions that we may still have, God says we will fall with them that do fall. At the time that I visit them, they shall be cast down, says the Eternal. So church and nation are going down together. And only those few whom God says he will protect, his remnant, will escape it. Where do we want to be? And what will it take to be there? I think it is important we go through this so that we really realize what the stakes are. So that we truly comprehend what is about to come. I know we don't like to dwell on it. We don't like to hear about death and violence and destruction if it pertains to us. We don't like to dwell on it. But God has made this a major part of Jeremiah's message. And it is a very major prophecy for the very end time. So whether we like it or not, and whether it sounds peaceful, and whether we love to have it so... It needs to be covered. We need to firmly grasp how bad it will be and do everything we can to get away from it. So this is for our good that we go through this, even though it's painful. But, you know, if you just hear it and it's words and we don't do anything about it, we could be left behind. I don't want that to happen to you and I don't want it to happen to me. Verse 16, thus says the eternal, stand you in the ways and see and ask for the old paths. Where is the good way? And walk therein, and you shall find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk therein. 
Now, what are the old paths? We might immediately think, well, that's the way it was in Worldwide originally. That could be to some degree. But what path does Christ tell us to walk in? To walk as he walked. To follow in his footsteps. To pay attention to what he has done. Now, when did he start doing something that we know about? Genesis 1.1. These are all his works all the way through. From Adam and Eve, and his first instruction to them, he began to tell them his way of life and the correct paths to walk in. They didn't follow it very long, but that's where he started. And he called individuals. He worked with Enoch. He worked with Noah. He worked with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He worked with the prophets. He worked with some of the kings. He worked with the apostles in the New Testament church, and he's working with the church today. He has explained over and over and over again in the Bible his way of life. His way of life is proclaimed from the very beginning instruction through everyone, Moses and the Israelites, and all the instructions he gave them. Whatever era you want to find and, and examine in the Bible or in history, God has told you what path to follow. And you know what? It hasn't changed. There are certain things like animal sacrifices and ceremonial washings and rituals and so on that are not to be done physically, but the principle is still there. The old way of self-sacrifice and giving and circumcision of the heart that's addressed in the Old Testament and the New Testament hasn't changed. Physical circumcision has. Spiritual has not. What are the old paths? Every word of God. Every word of God. I don't think it's fair to go back and say, well, in our experience, the old path would be what Worldwide did one day as opposed to what Worldwide is, or whatever they're going to call it now, is doing today. Only to the degree that Herbert Armstrong and the church followed Christ. Just as Paul said, follow me only as I follow Christ. Who has the old paths, the correct paths? Christ. Paul had to walk in those paths. Herbert Armstrong needed to work, walk in those paths. He did, to a great degree. But we're finding out that he did not follow Christ's word always perfectly. So those places where he did follow Christ, we should continue to follow them, and some of those old paths are correct. And they're certainly not like the path the worldwide has taken today, by any means. So even in our experience, the old is better than that which is brand new. But we have to examine everywhere we put our foot to be sure we're walking as Christ walked. Those are the old paths we have to consider. In other words, we need to be studying the Bible from cover to cover, and everything inside, and not leaving out anything. I think there's a place back here where Jeremiah says something about not letting one word drop to the ground. So ask for the old paths. Go back in history, not just in worldwide history, go back through all that God ever instructed people on this earth. Find out what he said. Where is the good way? And walk therein, and you shall find rest for your souls. 
God gives us the answer, brethren. He says, examine every path that Christ has walked. Walk it. Live it. Do it. And you will find rest for your soul. Rest for your soul when? When those who are coming from the north to destroy our people and the church are on their way. When the destroyer of the Gentiles is making his plans. Do you think for a moment, as close as we are to the end, that people are not plotting our demise? Of course they are. That's what the New World Order is all about. And America is the biggest thing that stands in the way of this great combine of miry clay and iron from coming on the scene. We are their biggest stumbling block and obstacle. And that's the one they're working on destroying. When this Babylonian system falls, that one will take over. So if you want to find rest for your soul, and we do, don't we? Yes, we do. He tells us what to do. But here again, it's like we was talking the other day, it's a lot about attitude. You and I have an awful lot of truth. But what is our attitude? That's what he addresses next. He says, find the old paths, that is the truth, the good way. But they said, we will not walk there. We don't want to go there. Don't bring up all these scriptures. We have our, you know, the churches of God are getting like the world or the worldly churches. Many, many years ago, when God was calling a lot of people into the church, I remember in the 60s, when I had hundreds and hundreds of letters from new people to go visit down in South Florida, in the Bahamas. It didn't take long to figure out what church they had attended most of their life. And once that was determined, it wasn't hard to anticipate what questions they would ask and what the stumbling blocks would be and where they would go to try to answer against true doctrine. Because the Methodists, the Baptists, whoever they were, had a very defined and short path through the Bible. They would bring up five or six verses over and over and over. That's all they knew. And that was basically what comprised their religion. If they were a religion that believed in grace only... God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that all would have eternal life. You know. And they had three or four or five they put with them. All you had to do was destroy that foundation and their doctrine and their religion went with it. Some of them had more. Some of them had 10 or 12 or 15 scriptures they knew. And it's getting to where the churches of God have a very narrow path through the Bible. They don't want to look at all these words. They've got Matthew twenty four fourteen, and any of them that deal with I'm the preacher, send me your money and pray. And then they got eight or ten to go with that. And you know, I, you know, churches of God may have fifty or a hundred. Well, let's give them credit. They don't just have five to fifteen. 
But that's about all they dwell on. We're to examine all the ways of God and all the old paths and walk therein and we'll find rest for our soul. But their attitude is not right. We won't walk there. We don't want to go there. Also I set watchmen over you, saying, Hearken to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, We won't hearken either. Not only do we not want to go there and walk there, we don't even want to hear about it. Now how are you going to reach a people with that attitude? No wonder Jeremiah was frustrated and said, I'm weary of holding in. I'm just going to flat it out. Whatever it falls on, let the chips fall. It's the way it has to be. Maybe some will listen. So God said he set watchmen to look, to say, hey, you know, there's trouble coming. We don't want to listen to that. Therefore hear, you peoples, and know, O congregation, what is among them? Let's look at reality. Know what is among them. Hear, O earth, the congregation and the people of the earth. It's coming on everyone. Church and state. Hear, O earth, behold, I will bring evil upon this people, even the fruit of their thoughts, because they have not hearkened to my words, nor to my law, but rejected it. I would refer you here to 2 Corinthians 10.5, where it says, Bring every thought into the captivity of Jesus Christ. We are seeking absolute mind control. That's a bad word in the world today, isn't it? Mind control. But it's not God that controls your mind and your emotions. It's not the church or the ministry that controls your mind and your thoughts and your emotions. Christ, or Paul, Christ through Paul, says, you bring your thoughts into captivity. You exercise mind control over yourself. No one else can do that. People can influence you. People can guide you. But you are the only one who can control what you let go through your mind. No one else can do that. But God says he is going to bring the fruit of our thoughts upon us, because they have not hearkened to my words, nor to my law, but rejected it. So we're to live by every word of God, and we're to bring every thought into captivity. That's the standard God sets. That's the goal that we are seeking to reach. God says, you reap what you sow, and the fruit of your thoughts is going to be what you receive. The wages of sin is death. And if we allow sinful thoughts through our minds and are not working continually and daily to get that sin out of our mind, our emotions, then we will receive the fruit of that thought. If you think lies, 
People will lie to you, and they will take everything you have. If we think adultery, our wives will be taken away in rage. If we think murder, hate, we will be murdered, hated and murdered. Whatever we think, whatever we allow go through our minds, will come upon us. The fruit of our thoughts. And if our thoughts are evil continually like they were before the flood, and just as they are at the end of the age, then that's what will come upon us. Hard say. But God gives fair warning. He lets us know ahead of time. You reap what you sow. To what purpose comes there to me incense from Sheba, and the sweet cane came from a far country? God says, why am I smelling foreign smells? If you're my people, why don't I smell things that are close to my heart and mind? Scents that I like, rather than something foreign and strange to me. You, you notice when somebody's burning trash or weeds or plastic or tires upwind from you, don't you? What's this strange smell? We've even, haven't we all at one time or another in our lives walked outside to see what's burning? I'm getting this strange smell that I don't normally get. And one that is foreign to me, that my nose doesn't like. God looks at his people Israel. What does he say in Ezekiel 16? You don't look like my people. You look like Gentiles to me. I won't go back and read that. We've been there. But we'll probably get there in Ezekiel someday. Why do I hear incense or smells, incense from Sheba, and sweet cane from a far country? Your burnt offerings are not acceptable, nor your sacrifices sweet to me. In other words, if we give God lip service, and let's translate this into New Testament doctrine, Romans 12, 1, present your bodies a living sacrifice. Do good to others. Love your enemies. Do good to them which persecute you and despitefully use you and so on. I can name a lot of scriptures in the New Testament about what our attitude and approach and our life of service should be. But God sees our religion, but does he see a cup clean on the outside and filthy on the inside? Or or are the prayers and the deeds and the way of life we are living come up as a sweet smell that is recognizable to him? How did Christ live his life? He lived it as a continual and perpetual sacrifice to the good of others. That's what he did. He had to go up in the hills once in a while to recharge his batteries and pray. But his waking moments, for the most part, were in the service of others. What is the overall American way? Me first. I'll take care of myself. Is any time left for you? Fine. I may not watch TV. I may help. Maybe. Jesus Christ presented his body a living sacrifice. And that's what he calls upon us to do, and walk in that path. That's an old path that he's walked. He wants us to walk there. 
So he wants a sweet, acceptable sin coming up to him. That we are presenting our bodies to each other and to him as living sacrifices. What did they do with animal sacrifice? They slit its throat and poured its blood on the ground as a sacrifice. The old self has to die. We're to live a new life. We're not to even look like, sound like, act like at all what we did before we received God's truth. We are to be transformed to look like God. To walk as Christ walked. If we're doing that, it goes up to God as a sweet scent, a savory smell, and one that is not foreign to him because he was well pleased in his son and what his son did. And therefore, if we smell, if you will, like Christ smelled when he was here on the earth, God will say, that's something I recognize. That's just like my son and the scent that he set up as a sacrifice to me when he was walking the earth. This is what he's after. Therefore, thus says the eternal, verse 21, Behold, I will lay stumbling blocks before this people, and the fathers and the sons together shall fall upon them. The neighbor and his friends shall perish. What's he talking about here? He's talking about God's way of life, about the old paths of Christ, about the sacrifice of Christ here on the earth, and how we ought to be walking that way. Now, what then creates a stumbling block for people who don't want to hear that or listen to it or walk in it? True doctrine and those who will have the right spirit and attitude, that will be a stumbling block to them. I mean, that's the subject here. That's what the context is talking about. True doctrine can be a stumbling block to people. How many people stumble if you decide to keep the correct calendar? Ninety percent plus of the church will stumble on that right now. Already have. How many will stumble over us having the right attitude and approach toward being individual Christians before God? Some have stumbled over sovereign citizenship, thinking that they will do what they wish. They usually wind up in jail, and they don't usually wind up close to God. I've seen it happen in many, many cases. They wind up close to themselves and trying to protect themselves rather than giving, serving others. How many stumble over government properly used? Subject of government, good or bad, has been a stumbling block for tens of thousands of people in God's church. They've seen bad government, so they begin to reject all government. You know, we go from one ditch to the other. It's a huge stumbling block. Many have stumbled over race issues. Prejudices in and every direction. That should not be a stumbling block. Christ says we're all one in Christ. Neither Greek nor Jew, 
male or female, as far as he's concerned, we're all one. You're grafted in, you're part of. You're part of the tree then. Shouldn't be any stumbling block over race. Shouldn't be any prejudices. Some people in God's church, black, white, brown, or yellow, still have prejudices in one direction or another. There is no room there to stumble over it. What about the proper counting of Pentecost? The 14th Passover instead of the 15th. What about a seven-day Passover season instead of an eighth? You can go on and on if you start examining this word and getting it right, things that people will stumble over. Tithing. How many things? I just jotted a few that came to mind down here in my margin some years ago. In fact, they're fading out. These aren't some that I'm picking out to stumble over people. These are right here if you want to come look at them after. I'm not picking on anyone. These are just things that I had written down here that I've seen people stumble over. God will lay stumbling blocks of truth. The fathers and the sons together shall fall on them. The neighbor and his friend shall perish. Now, why are people perishing? Because of disobeying God. That's what this is all about. So it's not stumbling blocks out of paganism in the world. In that sense of the problem, it's stumbling over the things of God that is bringing the destruction. Verse 22, Thus says the Eternal, Behold, a people comes from the north country, and a great nation shall be raised from the sides of the earth. <clears throat> we're on different time than we're at the feast. I'm looking at my watch. We've still got some time. Thus says the Eternal, Behold, a people comes from the north, and a great nation shall be raised from the sides of the earth, all around the earth, the sides of a, a sphere, a globe. They shall lay hands on bow and spear. They are cruel and have no mercy. So these people that are coming to destroy us will not listen if you ask for mercy. If you're standing there, there's no escape. And you plead for mercy. The people who are coming against us will have no mercy. Their voice roars like the sea. Sea can really roar at times, can't it? And they ride upon horses, set in array as men for war against you, O daughter of Zion. Both the church and the nations as daughters in that sense. We have heard the fame thereof. Our hands wax feeble. In other words, word will be coming that there is a coalition gathering, that there is a new world order, and that America does not want to accept it. And even though our leaders are betraying us into it as we speak today, pagan Washington is betraying us to the New World Order. Our leaders are doing it to us. They're selling us out. And we'll feel weak and inept and unable to do anything about it. Anguish has taken hold of us, and pain as of a woman in travail. The birth pangs hit, you see it coming, and you know the pain will be there until the baby is born. 
Some people are beginning to wake up and realize that we are a nation and a church in trouble, and the pain will not go away until this thing is finished. It says, Go not forth into the field, nor walk by the way, for the sword of the enemy in fear is on every side. It won't make any difference. I was just reading in U.S. News uh, an article about the bird flu. And it says there's no way really that the governments can prepare. And it says they don't even know really what to tell us to do. Whether to get inoculated or to stay away from people or kill all birds or leave the cities or what. But they did mention leaving the cities because that is where there are more people to spread disease. That is where when the military might comes, they concentrate first because that's where you can control the most amount of people and kill the most the quickest and get slaves the fastest. After you take care of the cities, then you begin to look around and take care of the farmers. But those who live in cities are going to get it first. That's where it will come first. But this, So this does not contradict what we read in Micah 4 about leave the city and go dwell in the feet. This is just saying there's going to be wherever you go, whether it's out and leave the city and go out into the field or you walk along the, the road or the streets, if you're anywhere, you're vulnerable. doesn't make any difference where. For the sword of the enemy in fear is on every side. We're surrounded. Or will be surrounded. O daughter of my people, gird you with sackcloth and wallow yourself in ashes. Make you mourning as for an only son. Most bitter lamentations. And Jeremiah indeed wrote a book of lamentations, which follows this one in the order of the scripture. For the spoiler shall suddenly come upon us. Weep and wail, because it's going to happen very suddenly. We read that just a few chapters back, didn't we? about how it would come suddenly and our, we will be spoiled in a moment. Chapter 4, verse 20. Several times in this book, he talks about how quickly it will come. You know, you can think you're cagey and you can think you're smart and you can kind of watch and you can run at the last minute. Maybe, maybe not. It's going to happen very suddenly. Why do we want to cling to Babylon as long as we can anyhow? I wonder. Anyway, the spoiler shall suddenly come upon us. I have set you for a tower and a fortress among my people. Speaking here, I think, of Jeremiah as a, uh, a type of other watchmen who would come later, but his words were preserved in French. So he is still a watchman, dead and rotted long ago in his grave, but he's still a very viable watchman. He's a tower. They, they built towers in the vineyards so that you could sit up and see foxes and other predators who would come in and eat the grapes. And a fortress. Remember God said he would make him a brazen wall and, and a defense for the people back in chapter 1 when he commissioned it. So God is Put Jeremiah, not Jeremiah per se, 
What good can Jeremiah do you and me today? He's dust. He's dried and shriveled. As an individual, he can't protect us and help us. But his words have been preserved for thousands of years for those upon whom the ends of the world would come. So he is still a watchman and a fortress for us. If we will do what he says to do, then that fortress will protect us. Not only that, we'll see the danger coming because he's the watchman. So these words are here, written for us. God will send other watchmen to watch for us as human beings to read the words of Jeremiah to us. But he is, it's his words, not anybody else's. You know, I could put this aside and go talk to people somewhere and tell them all the things that I think are about to happen. Big deal. But when I open this book and read what God wrote thousands of years ago that would happen, that is a big deal. This is a big deal here. That you may know and try their way. Now, what does God tell the two witnesses to do in Revelation 11? Measure the altar and then the worship therein. Leave the Gentiles out. Just deal first with the church. Later on, give a final warning and witness against the world. But it's very clear in Zechariah 4 that giving oil to all seven churches, or the seven women would take care of one, take hold of one man, and so on and so forth. Seven trees planted in the wilderness. Many, many scriptures show that their first job is to the church, not to the world. And to know and try their way. A plumb line, a rod to measure, to check, to try, to test, whether those be God's people indeed or not. They will have the word of God and the words of Jeremiah to use to measure by. They are all grievous revolters, walking with slander, gossiping, backbiting. Glad that never happens around here. Glad I never do it. You know, one thing that characterizes God's people, I think, is big mouths. The only time they seem to quit talking is if you shove food, physical food, in their face. You know, it's yak, 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 and then you stick food in front of them, it's quiet as a church. Maybe that's the wrong word. It's quiet, anyhow. Because we like to eat. I think that's one thing we like to do better than talk, is eat. And talk is not wrong, and fellowship is not wrong, don't get me wrong. But if there's slander involved, and there's destruction of character or loss of reputation as a result of what is said, then we're infringing on this, and we need this standard held up against us. They are brass and iron. One of the characteristics of brass and iron is that they're hard and cold. And isn't the love of many going to wax cold at the end? They are all corruptors. The bellows are burned, the lead is consumed of the fire, the founder melts in vain, for the wicked are not plucked away. Reprobate silver shall men call them, because the eternal has rejected them. 
silver that has not been purified. Christ talks about how he purified the sons of Levi and Malachi. How he is a refiner. And how he's going to make us pure and clean. But he put us in the fire and we don't clean up and the impurities don't come out. God will reject us. He wants that which is pure and holy. That which is clean and unadulterated. That which is zero, 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 zero point nine nine pure silver and gold. He doesn't want us full of corruption. So he says, seek the old paths. Seek God's way. Don't go the way of the world and don't go with the standard that we have come to accept in the church. Sometimes in God's church, we felt like we had changed and were not quite as bad a liars, cheats, thieves, and so on as the world. Therefore, we must be okay. And we've accepted a standard far below what God puts ahead of us or in front of us. We can't do that. We have to look at the standard laid out in his word and do the best we can to reach that standard. We may not fully do it, and we'll have to pray, account me worthy because I'm not. God have mercy on my miserable soul because God's mercy endures forever, but these people who are coming against us have no mercy. Now, whose hands do you want to be left in? Remember when David had a choice? of whose hands he would be left in? Basically, man's or God's. And it was God's law that David had broken. God, you would think, would be the one who had the greatest vengeance and desire to punish David since it was God's law that had been trampled upon. But, God, but David said, No, I don't want my physical enemies on this earth to be my judges. I want you. Because even though I've sinned against you, and you only have I sinned, he said in Psalm 51, he knew God was merciful. So the standard is very high. The standard is every word of God and every thought. None of us have lived up to that yet. And every word we speak is not righteous yet. Sometimes we walk with slander. But we need to call that out. We need to work on that one. I think that's one of our biggest sins. I would hate to go through all of this and be called reprobate silver by men because God has rejected me. don't want that to happen. don't want to happen to you. Let's see if we can get into chapter 7. So this doesn't take all of six months. The word that came to Jeremiah from the eternal saying. So here are words directly from God to Jeremiah written down for us. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house. Sounds like the church to me. And proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah, that enter in at these gates to worship the Lord. Now who enters in to worship God today? No one but called out once. It has to be talking to us directly. All those out in the world who claim to be Christians and don't have the truth 
are worshiping God, they worship they know not what, as Christ said. So this could only apply to us. Stand in the gate of God's house, not Satan's facilities, but God's house. And say, hear the word of the Lord, you spiritual Jews that enter to worship the eternal. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your doings, and I will cause you to dwell in this place. So the condition here is obey God. Bottom line, if you want to live and stay in God's house, whether it be his physical church now or his house eternally, you've got to mend your ways and your doings. We just simply have to face that this is talking about me and do something about it. Daily, seeking to grow and overcome. Turning to God so that we can. Because you and I are not going to change on our own. It just isn't going to happen. We have to go to God continually, daily, asking forgiveness, asking help, asking encouragement, asking strength to control even our little tongue among other parts of the body. Trust you not in lying words, saying, The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. We're the church. Oh, we're the church. Don't you know? We're the church. We're okay. So don't just say we're the church. Change your ways. Mend your thoughts. Fix your fences. Heal the breaches. For if you thoroughly amend your ways and your doings, if you thoroughly execute judgment between a man and his neighbor, don't turn feignedly, as he said earlier about Judah in the previous chapter, but thoroughly mend it. Don't give it lip service and do a little better. Don't turn half-heartedly to God. Turn wholeheartedly to God. Mend your ways thoroughly. Thoroughly execute judgment between a man and his neighbor. Will we come to the point we love our neighbor as our self? This is New Testament theology we're talking about here. Thoroughly execute judgment between a man and his neighbor. Don't try to cheat your neighbor. Don't try to get the best of it. Don't try to take from it. Don't covet what he's got. If you oppress not the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, don't take advantage of anyone. See, if you walk as Christ walked, you will take care of the fatherless, the stranger, and the widow. You will make it a point in your life to be sure everyone is taken care of. When someone new shows up at the feast, there will be no doubt that they would not have one night in which they didn't probably have several invites to dinner. 
There would not be one service they would attend and stand against the wall and wonder if someone will come speak to them and invite them and welcome them. They would not visit and not be barraged by people asking them to come and eat with them or speak with them or stay at their place or whatever. They simply couldn't get in this door without being taken care of. I wonder if that's the way any visitors to our feast felt this year. Man, these people drive me crazy. I can't eat that much. Everybody I talk to says, why don't you come have lunch or dinner with us? Or are we busy taking care of ourselves and our friends and those people don't get invited? It's a form of oppression when you come into a group and everyone doesn't welcome you. Everyone doesn't make it a point to come speak with you. Everyone doesn't welcome you with open arms and invite you to be with them. That's a form of oppression. Wouldn't you feel oppressed if you came in somewhere and you stood in the corner and no one bothered to speak to you or smile at you and invite you? You would feel oppressed, you would feel unwelcome, and you would depart. You know, I thought at times someone would come in here and I'd think, I wonder how many people invited that person to dinner. I wonder how many people spoke to that person. I wonder if I did. And at times I've left wondering, I sure hope somebody invited that person over. You know, they're just here visiting or something. I wonder how many invites they actually got. But I shouldn't have to announce it and say, I see we have a new one today. Would somebody please speak to that individual? If we're walking as Christ walked, and we're presenting ourselves as living sacrifices for others, nothing need be said. It will simply be taken care of. And we wouldn't depend on someone else to do it, because we are not to oppress the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. And shed not innocent blood in this place. Oh, nobody's going to stab somebody physically with a knife. But we might shed their blood spiritually if they come and they're not loved and warmed and welcomed and fed and clothed and whatever they need. Neither walk after other gods to your hurt. The God of selfishness, the God of my friends, the God of whatever. Then will I cause you to dwell in this place, in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. Not be taken captive into other lands, but dwell where God has given us blessing. Behold, you trust in lying words that cannot profit. We lie to ourselves, we lie to each other, and above all, we try to deceive and lie to God, and he ain't buying it. He won't accept it. 
Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal, and walk after other gods whom you know not? They're not really gods anyway, but for some reason it seems like we go our own way and we like something that's being produced in this world. Will you do these things and come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name? Will you do these things and come and stand in the temple of God and say, we are justified in all these things that we are doing? These abominations of the world and its culture, and Satan, and his ways. Do we think that God doesn't see that happening in his church? Is this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Is it like Christ chasing the money changers out of the temple? Are we here for selfish reasons? Or are we here for a continual, daily sacrifice of serving others? We're to be just like Jesus Christ, aren't we? We have no room for selfishness. We have no room for covetousness and idolatry. We should be loving our neighbor as ourselves. But go ye now to my place, which was in Shiloh, where I set my name at the first, and see what I did to it for the wickedness of my people Israel. Shiloh was set up as a place to worship God. I think Worldwide Church of God is a type of Shiloh. Because of disobedience and false worship and idolatry, 30,000 people died at Shiloh. God first said his name on the radio, later the Worldwide Church of God, in this age. And it has been destroyed as Shiloh. Because it was a false worship. It was a half-hearted worship. It was not a worship that was after every word of God and every thought into the captivity of Christ and of total self-sacrifice and service. That's what we're called upon to do. And now because you have done all these works, says the Eternal, and I spoke to you, rising up early and speaking, but you heard not, and I called you, but you answered not. Therefore will I do to this house, which is called by my name, wherein you trust, and unto the place which I gave to you and to your fathers, as I have done to Shiloh. And it has happened. The church has been blown apart. Spiritual death has occurred to a lot of people. And many, many more are sick, weak, and dying and going back into the captivity of the world. It's what's happened to the church. Brethren, we cannot say we are not being warned. If when this all comes down and you pray, count me worthy to escape, and God does not, you cannot say you have not been warned. Jeremiah is warning us. And I will cast you out of my sight, as I have cast out all your brethren, even the whole seed of Ephraim. Ephraim, he said, is his firstborn in Jeremiah 31. It wasn't originally, but God has changed the birth order 
in that sense. I would not be surprised if this country is not Ephraim and Britain is Manasseh. And this is where he is called most of those who are first fruits and are supposed to be firstborn. This is where the great preponderance, 90% or more, of those who were called in the end time have been called. And he says he'll cast us out like he has our brethren. We don't wake up and hear and fear. How far does God take this? Verse 16. Therefore pray not you for this people, neither lift up cry nor prayer for them, neither make intercession to me, for I will not hear you. He said, it is so far gone, I will not even listen. There comes a point for this nation, and even for the church of God, because indeed that's what this chapter is talking about, the temple of the Lord. Where he says, don't even pray for the church. I am going to do this. You're wasting your breath. To me, that is truly scary. Don't you want prayed for? I certainly want prayed for. But if we don't begin to look like God and have his image and think and act like Jesus Christ, he'll write us off. He'll throw us right into the fire. Say you are trying to save yourself. You're trying to live the way you want to live. Do the best you can. But the story of the Gentiles is on the way. Throw yourself on his mercy. See how far you get. Now's the time to throw ourselves on the mercy of God. While there is still chance to thoroughly amend our ways, our thinking and doing and acting. See you not what they do in the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood and the fathers kindle the fire and the women knead their dough to make cakes to the queen of heaven or for the workmanship of people that were formed from heaven. In other words, they worship themselves or they worship the earth, that which has been made instead of God. Queen of heaven could refer to Semiramis, and this could probably be talking specifically about Easter and the hot cross buns. They make cakes to the queen of heaven and to pour out drink offerings to other gods that they may provoke me to anger. I don't think it is in reference just to Easter by any means because it's a general statement of all kinds of other gods and that we're preparing to follow them. Do they provoke me to anger, says the Eternal? Do they not provoke themselves to the confusion of their own faces? Won't this come back on them? And they'll say, Lord, didn't we do this? Didn't we do that? And say, no, no, I don't know you. I don't recognize you. And won't we get a confused, perplexed look on our face about that time? What do you mean? Didn't I pray? Didn't I love you? Yeah, but you didn't take care of the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, and you shed innocent blood by offending the little ones. Oh. 
Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my anger and my fury shall be poured out upon this place, upon man, upon beasts, upon the trees of the field, upon the fruit of the ground, and it shall burn and shall not be quenched. Total destruction. Thus says the Eternal of hosts, the God of Israel, Put your burnt offerings unto your sacrifices and eat flesh. They don't mean anything to me. For I spake not to your fathers, nor commanded them in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings or sacrifices. People say, well, they had to do the Passover based on the morning and evening sacrifice, the fifteeners. They didn't even have a morning and evening sacrifice when they came out of Egypt. The only sacrifice that was mentioned at all was the Passover lamb. So how would they know what a morning or an evening sacrifice even was or when it should be given? Well, it has to be at 9 and 3 in the morning. we got to have sacrifice the Passover 3 in the afternoon because of the morning and evening sacrifice. It simply didn't exist. That isn't the point here. The point here is that those sacrifices, those ceremonies, were not spoken as they came out of Egypt. It was added later because of transgression of the law. I didn't command you to make those sacrifices, but this thing commanded I them, saying, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people, and walk you in all the ways that I have commanded you. Now, did Jeremiah refer to the old ways back in chapter 6, verse 16? Yes, he did. What does God bring up here? What does Jeremiah say again? All the ways that I have commanded you, that it may be well with you, but they hearkened not, nor inclined their ear, but walked in the counsels and in the imagination of their evil heart, and went backward and not forward. Always went back to the ways of man and Satan. That's what Israel has always done. Since the day that your fathers came forth out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have, sent, I have even sent to you all my servants the prophets, daily rising up early and sending them. Yet they hearkened not to me, nor inclined their ear, but hardened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. We just do worse and worse and worse until it gets so bad, God can't stand it. Therefore, because of this, he says, therefore you shall speak all these words to them, but they will not listen to you. They shall, you shall also call to them, but they will not answer you. You can scream and shout all you want. They simply won't listen. They don't want to hear what God has to say. But you shall say to them, This is a nation that obeys not the voice of the eternal their God, nor receives correction. Truth is perished. We must worship in truth and in spirit. Truth is perished and is cut off from their mouth. You know, it doesn't necessarily mean all the basic doctrines have perished, even within the church. But honesty, truth, is what has perished. We deceive ourselves as to our true spiritual condition. That's what the problem with Laodicea was. They thought they were dressed in fine, righteous, holy garments but they were blind and naked and had deceived themselves as to what their true spiritual condition, I could say, was, is. 
This is present tense. We have deceived ourselves about our true spiritual condition. You'll call, they won't answer. Truth is perished. Cut off your hair, O Jerusalem, cast it away. In other words, mourn. Take up a lamentation on high places. For the Lord has rejected and forsaken the generation of his wrath. The church today is the beginning of the generation of his wrath. This generation will not pass till these things are all finished. But he has taken out his wrath first on this generation of the church. He is about to turn it loose on the nation and the 90% of the church that is left behind. That's what we're down to. For the children of Judah have done evil in my sight, says the Eternal, and they have set their abominations in the house which is called by my name to pollute it. Still talking about the church, spiritual Jews. They built the high places of Tophet, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, down the valley outside of Jerusalem, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire. We don't literally burn them, but we're burning them in the fire to the false culture and society of this world. We're allowing them to continue to wallow in it and to partake of it in music and clothing in various ways. And if this continues, they will also burn in it and be destroyed and die in it. You don't think you're sacrificing your children in the fire? You might be, and I'll realize it. Therefore, behold, the days come, says the Eternal, and it shall no more be called Tophet, nor the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. Change the name. For they shall bury in Tophet till there be no place to bury people. And the carcasses of this people shall be meat for the fowls of the heaven and the beasts of the earth, and none shall take them away. Then will I cause to cease from the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem the voice of laughter, the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, and the voice of the bride, for the land shall be desolate. <laughs>